Hello, and welcome to our regular podcast focusing on the Black Country. Now, of the myriad factors that helped define the Black Country, it was the big four of coal, iron ore, limestone and fire clay that underpinned the emergence of its industrial heart. Now, whilst coal, and in particular the famous 30-foot Staffordshire seam, was king, the interplay between it and the other three components was a crucial factor in the development of its numerous industries, all of which required these key elements in varying degrees, but inevitably in huge amounts. The geology of the area is unique, and visitors from all around the world still come to study that which remains after decades, of centuries, of rapacious exploitation. But by what serendipity did coal, iron ore, limestone and fire clay happen to become juxtaposed in this way? What is their origin and how has this impacted on the physical nature of the landscape? How are they exploited? And what were the socio-economic consequences of that exploitation? Joining me to discuss this and shed light into some quite literally dark corners are author and lecturer Trevor Raybold, whose doctorate examined the Dudley Estate Manuscripts. He's both a founder member and past president of the Black Country Society. Uh, Graham Wharton is Keeper of Geology at Dudley Metropolitan Borough Council. Uh, he has a particular interest in the UK coal measures and Silurian rocks, a term I'm sure he'll explain, and currently contributes a geological conservation column in the Black Country a Geological Society's newsletter. Uh, welcome to both of you. Graham Wharton, uh, it's difficult to align the human mind with the magnitude and timescales involved here, so I appreciate this is a big ask, but can you explain in lay terms the events and the timescales that contribute to Dudley's unique geology, and in particular the laying down of our four key ingredients of coal, iron ore, limestone and fire clay? I can, and the landscape around us actually took millions of years to be created, and that's happened in a series of events, in a series of places that were far away from the black country that we have today. How far? The earliest layers of rock, the ones deepest down in the pile, the limestone layers belonging to a period called the Silurian, formed about 23 degrees south of the equator. Today, we are 54 degrees north of the equator, so we've travelled 70 degrees of latitude along the planet's surface, which would have put us about where northern Brazil is today. So, a nice tropical area. Now, this is all based on the uh, tectonic plate theory of bits of the Earth moving around, to put it simply. It is. And that's quite a relatively modern theory. So presumably 50, 100 or 150 years ago, before tectonic plate theory, we'd have had great difficulty explaining how these materials arrived here. Yes, it was a real curiosity to people. And the plate tectonic theory was first postulated in 1967 and proven. So it's more than a theory now, Gray. It's actually a known process of planet Earth. But before that, people didn't know why the layers looked so different and were not sure that the fossil evidence contained in, which is so wonderful here in the Black Country, so very special, how it could change from those limestone layers being full of shelly fossils and the beloved Dudley Bug, the emblem of the limestone miners, to the next layers upwards, which contained coal and leaves of primitive ferns and trees. But they knew that that was evidence of incredible changes over very long time periods. But yes, it was the advent of modern science which gave the reason why. Not the time, but the reason why and how. 
So let's look specifically at perhaps our greatest natural asset, coal, and uh, the significance of this 30-foot seam. Now, I do know that whole industries have been built up on seams of less than five feet thick. This is quite extraordinary compared to the coal measures. And what other coal measures apart from this one do we have? Where do they lie? And how do they equate to the deposits of iron ore, limestone and fire clay in the area as well? Okay, well, the coal seams are all essentially piles of dead trees and dead vegetation that accumulated, that fell into and piled up as layers on the bottom of a swamp. It was very much akin to the steamy rainforests of today. We were certainly round about the equator, the central line of the earth at the time, so there was plenty of sunshine and plenty of rain. These forests grew very quickly, so the trees would spurt up as much as 15 metres a year, and some of these trees were enormous. They grew to 300 feet high. And then, of course, processes of dying and falling over, getting buried in a swamp, created these layers of vegetation, which eventually would become compressed and heated and turned to the coal that we know. The reason that they are interspersed with layers of fire clay and layers of ironstone is because of that swampy environment. The forests grew in a fossil soil, in a soil which they founded their tree roots in, and that got leached of the chemicals that the tree needed to grow. And so the layer beneath the forest, the fossil soil, very pure in silica and aluminium oxides, but leached in a lot of the other things, is actually what becomes the fire clay, which can be made into bricks, which are very, very hard, very resistant to any chemicals. So if you make, say, a furnace to melt glass, molten glass can be a very aggressive chemical mixture. These bricks, which are mainly pure silica and pure aluminium oxide, they are very good for lining furnaces. So the fire clay is the soil from the forest that was there about 300 million years ago. The ironstones form because it was a swampy forest. And in the middle of the trees and around the edges of streams which ran through that forest were stagnant pools, bogs and mud flats. On those areas, the vegetation from the forest would be rotting away and using up all the oxygen in the water. And that allowed anoxic, oxygen-free conditions to occur within these swamps and these pools in which iron minerals could begin to deposit from the water. And so we get lumps of ironstone, iron carbonate, forming in these bogs. And so that gave us layers of ironstones too. And this whole thing was slowly subsiding. The whole swamp was settling into a deep basin that stretched from here right up to Scotland, a thing we call the Pennine Basin. And so as time went by, the layers would get more deeply buried and another one would form on top. And so we see a repeat. These things seem to cycle. Fire clay, coal, ironstone, repeating. We call them cyclothems. So you get many seams of coal, many seams of fire clay and many seams of ironstone stacked one on top of another like a giant sandwich. In this particular neck of the woods, what makes us so very special is that we were right on the edge of that basin where all those layers pinch together at the southern tip of that basin so they are very closely stacked together and in no other coal field 
that I know of at all in this world do so many seams of rich mineral come together in such a short or narrow thickness of rock layers. The whole Black Country coal field is no more than 400 to 600 feet thick. Within that 400 feet of strata, we have, on average, 11 coal seams, one of which you've mentioned, the South Staffordshire Thick Coal, which was up to 36 feet thick at Bilston. The thickest seam of coal, the richest energy source in the UK, possibly in Europe. And that wasn't buried by layers of boulder clay or other materials. It literally poked itself out of the Black Country hillsides. Associated with that were 10 other coal seams. Interspersed with those are up to 14 ironstone seams and 14 fireclays, all within 400 feet of strata. So basically, anywhere you dug a hole in the Black Country, you found fantastic usable minerals. Well, I think that explains just about everything from the geology of the area to how it was used and why people came here like glassmakers, ironmakers, because the, the materials were not only available abundantly, but, but so easily extracted. Absolutely. Just briefly, would you tell me where somebody could go and see them now and see what they look like in today's world? The wonderful limestone layers full of those incredible fossils can be seen here at Castle Hill. In the centre of Dudley, there are limestone hills. The one we're on is Castle Hill, and there are a number of exposures in the woods where you can see these rocks. But the best one is about a quarter of a mile away, called Wren's Nest. And that's so special, it's a national nature reserve for rocks and fossils. It was the first one of its kind set up in 1956. And there you've got huge rock faces, specifically protected so that people can go and see them and can collect fossils from the fallen rocks around those rock faces. Coal, ironstone and fire clay are exceptionally rare on a global scale to see these things in exposure. We are very lucky to have Saltwell's local nature reserve not far from us, just outside the town centre of Netherton or just between that and Briley Hill. And in there we've got a thing called Dalton's Clay Pit where they extracted a lot of clay. But in there too you can see seams of coal, and seams of ironstone, and seams of fire clay. I confess I'm familiar with that. It's a huge hole in the ground, isn't it? It is, and the hole you see is only half as deep as it was. It had a tramway running right to the bottom of it. Thank you. Trevor Raybold, you are very familiar with the social implications of mining in this area. What difficulties were encountered in getting Graham's minerals out of the ground and what were the social implications of it? How did it affect people's lives? There's the problem, how do you work this rich coal field? The landowners tended to rely on charter masters to work the pits for them. So as far as I'm aware, the earliest charter masters come into the area in the 1790s, the so-called charter masters or butty colliers. And the nature of the social problems of the area, I think, follow from the charter negotiated between the, the charter master and the coal owner. The coal owner received a charter per tonne of coal when the charter master sold the coal on his account. Conversely, if the owner sold the coal on his account, he would then pay a charter per tonne of coal to the gang master, the butty. And, of course, the miners were then paid out of the butty's profits. Therein lies the problem. He drove them in dangerous practices, very primitive maps, absence of maps, and accidents were very, very common. Breaking through into other people's 
shafts and workings unknown. Sometimes water would be let into the pits because you didn't know what you were cutting into. Many pits per acre in this area. And I think that these unpleasant, dangerous conditions below ground are mirrored above ground because the butty paid his men in his pub on a Saturday. He paid them in tokens and they were only useful in his shop so they were exploited above ground as well. Often they weren't paid by the week. They ran up a lot of credit and when they did get paid they celebrated riotously. So that's another social aspect for the miners. When they get their money, exposed as they were to these dangerous, arduous conditions, they enjoyed their liberty, their free time. They were at play, as they liked to say. And drunkenness, violence, blood sports of all kinds are common. And, of course, betting was endemic. So that when the initial commissioners come in, say, 1843, the Midland Mining Commission, what they wrote about the area reveals a very primitive race of people, shall we say. The fact that they were being exploited was not the point. They were describing the awful way of life these people had. I want to come back to the um, implications of uh, the innovators of the industries at the time in a moment, but uh, let me bring Graham in here. And uh, There must have been physical difficulties in actually, no matter what practices they used, extracting the stuff from the ground. And I'm thinking along the lines of we hear about faults, Western Geological Fault, Dudley Fault Line. What were those and how did that impinge on physically gain the stuff out of the ground? If you think about the way in which all of this started, it literally was lift the turf and dig from the surface a hole, an extract from the hole. As with Dalton's clay pit. But these layers don't lie nice and horizontal. They fold up like wrinkles in a carpet and occasionally they're fractured and they slid past each other or up and down by all of that plate tectonic jostling that's gone on. So once you start to follow a seam into the ground, you have a couple of problems. One is you are then working on a slope. Secondly, sooner or later, you are going to hit water and you're working in the dark with, as Trevor says, no map. So you don't know what's ahead of you. You don't know what the next bucketful may yield. It could yield tragedy when you burst through into earlier workings that you knew nothing about or it could yield a vast seam that's been shifted into your favour. And think of the Black Country landscape below ground as a series of children's blocks. Lots of fractures, lots of edges, all of which, with a knock, can be jostled and moved past each other into unusual orientations, or tilted, or folded, or missed altogether. On the edges of the coal field, the things that defined what we call the exposed coal field, where it literally comes to the surface, are very significant fractures. They're called the western boundary and the eastern boundary faults. And on both sides, the coal is thrown down, is moved downwards in the crust by up to 1,600 feet. So that then meant that on the edges, there is a pile of rocks which are barren of the coal, sitting on top that you have to get through first. And for a long time, they didn't drive down to those depths because they couldn't get the water out. If we think of coal mining occurring in the Black Country from at least the 1200s, and we've got evidence in the manorial rolls of Halesowen for working of pit coal from about 1281. So we've got 
many hundreds of years of very primitive, unrecorded, shallow working. But in 1712, the Newcomen engine made it possible to get water out of the mines. That was improved by James Watt. So eventually they could go deeper into the ground and work deeper and in more dangerous and dark conditions. I'm aware of uh, something over Penn's Net, I believe it is, uh, called Bond's Folly, where there was coal found on the ground or low level. So some entrepreneur decided to dig a mine close by and he went down 550 feet, 200 metres or so, and didn't find anything. Is that explained by the actual coal seam dropping on one of these faults in the children's bricks design? In that case, no. It's because they didn't understand the order of the layers of the rocks. And because these rocks arch up sometimes, like at Wren's Nest, the rocks from even below, deeper down, come through to the surface. So if you dig a, a hole in the centre of Wren's Nest hoping to go down to find coal, you're actually in the sequence of rock layers already underneath it. There's nothing down there. And so that's the same with Bond's Folly, that they dug an area which was already at the base of the coal field and they dug it deeper, hoping to find something, but never did. So you could have gone on all day and... Never found anything. It could have. <laughs> well, they would have found stuff, but it wouldn't have been the coal. <laughs> we had, before the use of coal in smelting, heavy use of charcoal. Trevor, what were the factors that went over to the use of coal? Who were the innovators? Why did that come about? The fact that mineral smelting is developed in Minebridge Gorge in the early 1700s by Abraham Darby led one of the other ironmasters of the gorge, uh, John Wilkinson, to bring that facility to the Black Country Plateau. We forget the Black Country itself is a plateau and there are no navigable rivers. When he came to Bradley and Bilston to sink his first colliery, he was able to do so because the canals had come. The canals opened up the plateau and it's from that point in the late 1760s that a massive explosion of activity starts and it continues really until well, the fourth quarter of the 19th century. Let me just interject there and clarify that you're suggesting that the exploitation of these minerals, together with the transport infrastructure that it helped develop, or vice versa, uh, was instrumental in serious social change in the area. Well, it was in the sense that mining became the main occupation and there's a lot of in-migration coming into the area. And, of course, to answer your initial point about charcoal and so on, if you coke coal, which is what Wilkinson was doing, you can then put that into the furnace. That is when the Black Country coal began to be exploited on a massive scale. It now had a use on the plateau in the growing number of iron furnaces. And it's then that the social problems come as you get massive in-migration. There's no structure, there's no regulation at all. Not for a hundred years. Okay, so let's look at a typical day in, if there is such a thing, the average miner's life. What would he do? How long would he work? What was his life expectancy? What would he get paid? And in particular, how did that compare and contrast with the other industries, like limestone, fire clay? Was it an easier option, a harder option? Was there nothing in it? Were you doomed to an early death anyway? I think the common factor in all of that is it depends where you are working. All of the seams in the Black Country pits could be dangerous. His day would begin, I suppose, around about 8 o'clock in the morning, and there were no fixed hours. Butties didn't work fixed hours, and the miners didn't expect them. They worked the stint, and the stint was the yardage below ground that the butty demonstrated with his yardstick. This is what you work today. And when they worked the stint, they could go home 
so it was rare if they went home by the mid-afternoon. It was something like a 10-hour day normally. But it was up to them to work the stint quicker and go if it worked that way. Then when they're back on the surface, they're indulging their usual pleasures of drinking and uh, gambling. They'd be racing their whippets, they'd be betting on bare-knuckle fights, and certainly on dog fights. Staffordshire Bull Terrier might also be still in use uh, baiting bulls. This was their pleasure. And as for the truck shops, they were abolished in 1831 by Act of Parliament, totally ignored in this area. So their day would also be going to the truck shop to try and exchange their tokens for food. You seem to paint a picture there, Trevor, of brief periods of hedonism and alcohol and sporting pleasure interspersed with interminable hours of life close on the edge of death. I'm surprised that with all this wealth that was created, there may not have been some relative improvement in life expectancy or something allied to the fact that things were getting better. How did life expectancy and living conditions compare with what went before, which was presumably an agricultural environment? Things didn't really improve until well into the 19th century in terms of government regulation. The miners couldn't organise a union to defend themselves because with all of these dozens and hundreds of little pits, the miners, it's not like being in a large factory, the men couldn't contact each other. But there was a South Staffordshire Miners Association founded in 1859 which tried to promote the miners' cause. They needed to be protected because things got worse. As the coal field began to run down and as ironworking began to run down in the last quarter of the 19th century, as steelmaking moved elsewhere, the last pinnacle of income from the pits was in the period about 1871 to 3 in the Franco-Prussian War, when a thick coal collier could get five and sixpence a day. For modern listeners, that's 27 and a half pence a day, that works out, yeah? Yes. And that was good wages in those days? It was good wages, very good money for the black country, certainly. The mine owners hit upon a good wheeze. They introduced what they call the sliding scale. And they said to the miners, look, you're on a good run at the moment. If the price of coal goes up, you'll get more wages. But they probably knew the price of coal was going nowhere but down. And by the time you reach 1876, the thick coal miners' wages had slid down to two and ninepence a day. And they stayed down there. There's a national debate about, is there a Great Depression from about 1873 to 1896. There's no debate in the black country. It really was a great depression in the pits and in the ironworks. We've been a little uh, presumptive there, Trevor, that uh, all the miners were men. And to uh, get rid of that stereotype, uh, we did have women in the brickmaking industry, for example. Brickmaking was considered women's work, was it not? And we had the, uh, the pit bolt wenches at the pit head. Uh, what was generally the role of women? It wasn't purely a man's world, was it? Indeed not. I mean, the pit bonk wenches uh, at the pit head, very important, because they sorted out the coal that came to the surface, graded it according to size and so on, and bagged it, ready for moving on in the coal barges or the wagons or the carts uh, out to the markets. There were no women below ground in the black country. That's a matter of dispute. The Earl of Dudley's great-grandfather was accused of being a mass murderer, sending women and girls to their deaths in the pits, not true in the black country. There were no women below ground. There were no girls, but there were boys from the age of seven or eight upwards. That was a normal boy's job in a coal field anywhere, to be below ground as a trapper opening the, the door to help vent the mines and so on. 
We've only got to look at somewhere like the Crooked House, the Glen Arms, I think his proper name is, to see the effects of subsidence and the effects of mining on the area. Graham Wharton, this huge extraction of minerals from the area, what's the long-term legacy? Where's the black country going to be in X thousand years' time with all these tunnels underneath? They're not going to stay there like forever, are they? Well, there are a number of misconceptions about the way in which abandoned mine workings behave, and a lot of it is due to the individual circumstances of the mine. But often the miner would backfill the void behind them with gob or gof. That did two things. It got rid of the mess, the stuff they didn't want, but it also helped to support the roof as they worked forward. So often the mines are not just big open voids. They're already semi-packed with material that the miners stowed away because they didn't want to bring it all the way to the surface. The biggest issue is with the mine shafts, the vertical pipes that they dug. I was given a document by a colleague from the Canal Trust that named 1,500 individual pits in the black country totaled over the period while good records were kept. It became law in 1874 to record the extent of your underground workings and your mine entries. Before that, there wasn't a specific law or requirement to keep a record of your workings. So there's a lot of workings we don't know a lot about, but we do know they were primitive, and they wouldn't have gone deep, and they would have been semi-backfilled. In modern workings, particularly in workings where they extracted the complete seam, long wall working is called, then the roof was allowed to collapse behind the working face. So within about 18 months of working the seam, settlement of the landscape surface has finished, has ceased. The issue with the black country is the fact that we've got a lot of unrecorded workings that we don't know what the miners did or left behind. And so very occasionally a circumstance will occur where a mine shaft opens up or an area of land settles a little bit because of something that was unusual in that particular mine or not completely filled or something unrecorded was there that no one realised. But it's not as common as most people think the settlement of the surface as the void below collapses. Lest we create the impression that the black country is going to disappear into a black hole, can we clarify the current state of building development and what goes on here to ensure that that's not likely of happening? Of course, there are unknowns and if the seam is shallow and there are any voids that could break upwards and through, then if there's any doubt about that, there are mining surveys done on pretty much every property in this area because of the mining legacy. And where there's any doubt whatsoever, an exploratory drilling program is done and any voids found whatsoever, even if it's in fractured strata, get grouted up cement grout is poured in and the voids are sealed. So anybody can come and live here or develop their business or build in complete confidence? Oh, absolutely. And every new development would have an investigation as part of the course. Now, we like to be uh, innovative here on the History West Midlands, so I want to be the first one to ask you about exciting new developments for your geopark. Are you prepared to tell us? I am, yes. And, of course, maybe it is a new chapter of history for the black country. But this black country history and its legacy of wonderful geology is exceptional on a global scale. We mustn't forget the black country has given an awful lot to the developed and the modern world. 
through that history of the last few hundred years. And there's a programme called the European and Global Geoparks Programme. It's fostered by UNESCO and there's a network across the world which celebrates, if you like, places of exceptional heritage linked to the landscape and the history of rocks buried beneath it. The Black Country is going forward to apply to be one such place. We have quite a number of wonderful, exceptional geological sites. We have this rich linked history of exploitation of that geology and a landscape created by that geology. It's time for us to tell that story to the world. And the process for doing that is an application to become a global geopark, which should take place between October the 1st and December the 1st this year. Excellent. Congratulations. Now, we've mentioned Trevor Raybould's Black Country Society, and you ain't no proper Black Country mono Roman if you ain't a member, if we can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, you chair a society that you're very proud of. Uh, give us details on that, would you? Indeed. It's the Black Country Geological Society, and it's dominantly an amateur society for people who like the geological story of the earth and particularly the special bits around the black country. We're a very friendly society that meet every Monday evening to have a lecture or to talk and discuss geological matters. And of course, uh, rather than giving you uh, lengthy website addresses, if you just type Black Country Society or Dudley Geological Society it's in your browser, I should imagine... BCGS, Black Country Geological Society dot org. Oh, right, there you go. <laughs> nice <laughs> and simple. A type it in the browser, will get you there. My thanks to uh, Dr Trevor Raybould and Graham Wharton for their contributions. And as always, if you wish to obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our podcasts or simply contact us. Then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website and following the relevant links. Join me next time. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening. Thank you.